0: So there, it's quite obvious, actually, as you do the practice. But actually, in the Zen tradition, if you ask somebody who do Zen, you know, how do you do compassion? They don't do it actually in the practice, because in the practice they just sit and ask, "What is this?" or whatever else they do. And actually, the, the compassion is very much, you know, we contain in this environment of the Bodhisattva precepts. Uh, I don't really have the time to talk about this now. And actually, in a way, one could say the four bodhisattva precepts are in a way contained in the four great vows. And so in a way, to give you a little of the feel, like in the morning of the compassion from the Theravada, Vipassana point of view, and then this evening, I can also introduce it a little from the Zen tradition. So the four great vows, and this is vows we recite very regularly, when we live in a monastery. Sentient beings are numberless, I vow to save them all. Compulsions are inexhaustible, I vow to dissolve them. Dharma gates are limitless, I vow to learn them all. The Buddha's way is unsurpassable, I vow to attain it. And so the first one very much I think set the scene for the practice. That the practice also, although when we are on retreat, in silence we have this feeling that this is a very introverted activity. I think it's very important to see that the meditation is within this context of ethics, meditation, wisdom, and within this again wider context of that we don't just do this for ourselves, but in a way we do this for others as well. So that the practice is to help us, I would say to connect even more to others, to open our heart, to see them more clearly. And that's why I think this um, first vow, sentient beings are numberless. I vow to save them all. It's kind of in a way saying an intention that I have this intention to see sentient beings. I have this intention to be there for them. But at the same time, we have to be careful that this is also what I would call a poetic aspiration, inspiration to give us energy, but that we don't take it literally that we have to save everyone every single day. You know, that we've spent our day totaling how many we saved today. You know, oh, I still have quite a few (laughs) left. But maybe we can see it more that actually we are there for, for beings of all types. You know, because I think often it is quite easy to be compassionate to what I would call the easy. People who are friendly, who are kind, who are nice to us. Then we're very happy to be compassionate to us. We also, you know, generally like little bunnies as long as, you know, they don't eat our carrots. Yeah, you know, we can be compassionate. But, In a way, I think the the vow is asking us to open ourselves wider than that, and so that we kind of try to see beyond the people we like, we feel comfortable with, and also reach out to, in a way, what one could call people who are difficult. And often I have people who tell me, you know, my, um, I find it so difficult, you know, being compassionate to my sister, and I said, but how often do you see your sister? She said, oh, uh, she lives in Germany, and I live in the United States. I said, well, then what is the problem? She said, well, she phones me. Mm-hmm. And I said, and when she phones me, I'm so, I'm so, so difficult. I said, but how often does she phone you? Oh, once a week. And I said, but how long? Half an hour. And I said, well, This is not too difficult, is it? I mean, you're not living with her all the time. And so in a way, to see that sometimes we stop ourselves from being compassionate, because of course, it is not easy to be with difficult people. People are really unhappy, people who find things very difficult. But I think anyway, this is a key of the compassion within the Buddhist tradition that it is stable and open at the same time. So we are open to the person, but at the same time when the person is not with us anymore, when the phone has gone down, then in a way we can let it go. We are very present to it and try to be compassionate then, to be understanding, to be kind. But once the phone call is finished, it's gone. One does not have in a way, to continue it in one's head. I think often, sometimes, we stop our compassion by, in a, way, in a way, grasping at the condition of the person instead of just being there totally and then see it's gone, it's past. It arose, you were present to it, and it's past. And now you can open your heart to yourself, to somebody else. And I think to, in a way, consider that, to remember that. And I remember when I was recently in Korea for a conference, I was very touched by a nun, uh, when they kind of uh, it to the nun conference, a women's conference, and so the Korean nun really had to entertain us in the evening. This is Korean Buddhism. And so every evening we would be entertained by all kinds of weird and wonderful things. But this time we were entertained, it was very moving by a choir of nuns, who would sing, but as they sang, they would also say the song in sign language. And it was very beautiful to see this very kind of a country folk song in sign language. And at the end of it, the nun who kind of was directing them said to the Buddhist people in the audience, the Korean lay woman, you know, there are deaf people in Korea. They also need your help. They also need your compassion. You cannot ignore them. They exist. You need to learn to communicate with them. Because in a way this is one of the problems with this idea of karma and rebirth in Asian society, that you know, you are disabled because of past karma. So you know, too bad, you know, you do what you can this life and hopefully next life it will be better. And so it kind of doesn't encourage you in a way to do things with disabled people. That's what I would call this very literal kind of fatalistic notion of karma. And I think that's what the nun was saying. You know, we must see these people as human beings, behind all this story about karma, rebirth, but in the present and learn to communicate with them. And I would say, in a way, this vow to save all sentient beings, we have to be a little careful that, because often I think in the West there is this idea that we're going to save them. Even if they don't want to be saying we're going to save them. And I think we have to be careful with this compassion. You know, I know what is good for you. But I think we have to be careful there. Maybe I personally see it more as I vow to serve all sentient beings. So more this idea of being available to others, of having space in our heart, for others, to in a way go out of our self-centeredness through this compassion, as Stephen keeps saying, through this doing, through this acting for the other. And so at that level, this compassion is not a passive compassion, but very much a creative and active compassion. I have a friend, we have a friend in America, and I'm really, I must say, very always very touched by this uh, man. And recently he sent us an email. And he said, uh, my business was very good this year. Because he's into some kind of finance, some mortgaging, financing. It's kind of a little kind of uh, weird, but it works. And uh, he said, you know, I had a very good year. Um, can I give... Uh, another ten thousand dollars to your favorite charity, and we said, sure, why not? You know, if you got them, you know, we have this uh, charity we kind of support in South Africa for AIDS in a very uh, poor village, and we said, you know, just send it again there because last year he did the same. He said, you know, do you have a charity you want to see? instead of giving dana to us? He kind of his, uh, dana was to give it to a charity, and we said, yeah, sure, give it to them. They really need it. But what is interesting about him is that he lives, he's a very very wealthy man. But he lives in a very, in terms of being wealthy, very ordinary house. And when people who work under him in his uh, company come to his house, they can't understand it. They can't understand why he lives in such an ordinary house, just two rooms, for America just two bathroom, no garden really. I mean, it's really kind of poor, I mean. And, but he says, I don't need any more. Why would I need a big house? What for? I I mean, I have a wife, my children, I've left them. I don't need more space than that. And he's very contented with just this ordinary house. And in a way, his aim, nowadays, is because, I mean, he he has had a very kind of painful life in many different ways, and then he found Buddhism, and then he found meditation. And he said, you know, my aim in life now is, of course, to earn money, but to make surplus, to make lots of surplus, so that I can give it to other people. And I don't need much money for myself. And to me, this is very, what I would call creative, wise compassion because he has certain skill, he can make money, obviously, but he doesn't see that that he needs that much of it. He doesn't need to impress anybody, and he just can then share it all over the world with all kind of projects, all kind of charity. So, in a way, to see how each of us, because not all of us is a kind of, you know, able to make money in that way. Mm-hmm. I am not, that's for sure. But each of us can find our creative, wise way to be compassionate. I think this is very important. Each of us has to find it for ourselves. And it can just be, in a way, for someone to, to play domino with one's grandmother. It can be to help a neighbor. It can be to write letters for Amnesty International. It can be so many different things. I think, in a way, there is, to me, compassion is this array of possibility that we can be creative within our life, within whom we encounter also what we're interested and what is our ability. But in a way, in these sentient beings, to be saved, there is also, I think, what is very important is ourselves that we are included in this sentient being. Because often I think we see compassion as being for others. But I think compassion is also for ourselves. I think this is very important, that we are one of the sentient being included in this vow. And at that level I think it's very interesting to reflect on what I would call the, the cross relationship with compassion and also with love. And to see how the Buddha often, and we've talked a lot about grasping, about self-centeredness, about this kind of self-focus on ourselves. And what is interesting about this self-focus is that for some strange reason, a lot of the time we don't love ourselves. For we crit- often we criticize ourselves, we think we're not good enough, or we always make the same mistake, or we did not achieve this, or we did not do this. I mean, we have a lot of what I would call negative loop tape within ourselves. And then what is difficult is that we have all these negative loop tape, <laughs> and at the same time, we're totally focused on ourselves. So in anyway, we're focusing on this person we don't like and we (laughs) stop with. And I think in a way maybe part of the compassionate attitude would be actually to love ourselves. You know, because I mean, also because it would be an easy way to feel well. Because how do you feel when you love something? When you love something you feel warm, you feel kind of light, you feel like there is life. And so in a way, Why can't we give this to ourselves? Because, I mean, this is the easiest person to give it to. I mean, it's right next to you. And so, in a way, to see that, that also, I would say, is compassion. To love ourselves, I would say, is a compassionate act. Also, not just for yourself, because if you start to love yourself and be kinder to yourself, generally, you will also be kinder to others and generally easier to live with So in a way, it's not just for yourself, this. It also considers other. So in that way, opening to ourselves, opening to (laughs) others. And within that, I think it's very important to see that there is a spectrum within compassion. That sometimes we have to have more compassion for ourselves, sometimes more for others, and sometimes we go in between. It's very important there is not one type of compassion. There are many different kinds because in a way there are many different beings and also many different situations. And also as a level to be, often there is this thing with compassion that is feeling that there is too much suffering in the world. And so we feel, if we feel that we open our heart in compassion, we're going to be overwhelmed. And I think that's why the meditation is so important with a compassionate attitude. Because when we cultivate meditation, we cultivate stability. And through that stability, we can be with suffering in a different way, so that we're not overwhelmed by suffering. We know it, we feel it, we're saddened by it, but we're actually not taken down by it. We can, in a way, be with it in this way which doesn't grasp and doesn't reject. But we can, in a way, embrace suffering in a different way, and through that, we can more creatively respond to it. And so, I would say, in a way, within that creative wise compassion, something we can easily do is listening. How do we listen? To really listen, because compassion for me is not to I know what's what. I know what you need but it's very much listening to what is it the person needs, what is it they want, and also, can I give it? And sometimes you might not be able to give it. The only thing you can do is be there for them. I remember when I was in Korea, I would repeatedly get letters, because I would appear in the newspaper as this special French nun. (laughs) And I would get these letters from youngsters, a young Korean boy or girl, maybe 18, 17, 19. And they would tell me, I am so poor. Can you help me? Can you give me some money? I mean, they must have thought, because I was Western, I must have lots of money. And, you know, and generally I just had, you know, like five pounds to my name as a nun. And so I would send them the five pounds, but I would say, that's all I have. I'm sorry, I can't do anything else. So in a way, to see that sometimes, We ask, but we cannot give, but at least we can be there for the person. I think this is important. The fact that we cannot give what is required doesn't mean we cannot be there, in a way, human to human with that person. And then there is a second vow. Compulsion are inexhaustible. I vow to dissolve them all. And I think in a way it's kind of, this vow is saying, yes, I want to work with my negative patterns, my destructive habits. that And I remember once when I was in Korea, I met this great master, a Zen master, who was you know, very helpful with the nuns and things, very nice. And I went to visit him with another nun, and he looked at me, very serious, because he was very imposing, I mean twice my size, very imposing, and he looked at me, he said, you're dark, aren't you dark? And I thought, I'm not really that dark, <laughs> You know, it was kind of funny putting me on the spot. And then I reflected that yes, you know, there is dark place within ourselves. And if we don't address them, if we don't look at them, then we will be blinded to them. And so they will make us, us act in a certain way, which actually will be destructive for ourselves, for others. And I think this is in a way part of the meditation process is to become aware of our compulsion, of our patterns, of our habits, not as a program of eradication, but in a way as a program of getting to grip with them, encountering them, knowing them, noticing them. And I remember when I was in Korea one time early on in my nun career, very early days, and sometimes we had a westerner passing by and we had to explain to them Buddhism. You know, I mean, I was just a nun for, you know, maybe a few months, but, you know, I still had to explain Buddhism. And I had always trouble at the beginning with the lists. You know, I even had trouble with the Four Noble Truths, you know. I've always forgot one. And so here I am. (laughs) You know, Trying to say, yes, yes, you know, Uh, first noble truth, yes, suffering, second noble truth, yes, craving. And suddenly, I saw a monk. He was pinching my persimmon. I picked them up myself. They were in my (laughs) pocket. So I go, I said, you can't take my persimmon. This is my persimmon, you know. And so he went off. And I came back, and I said, ah, yes, I remember. Third one, the cessation of craving <laughs> and the eightfold path. And they left happily. And then there was another nun there, and she turns to me, and she said, didn't you notice? I said, noticed?
1: Just <laughs> what?
0: Well, you know, when you were explaining, you know, the noble truth, you suddenly you were <clears throat> very angry. And it's only then I realized what I had done. I had done it on automatic pilot. You know, they're my approximate, you know, nobody could take them. you know, grasping, craving. And it was very interesting, it was a very interesting moment for me to kind of become aware how sometimes you go on automatic, you don't see. So in a way, in order to do anything about compulsions, you have to see them first. You have to acknowledge them, you have to accept them, And then, in a way, we can work on transforming them. But I think this is a very important part of this compulsion. Before, in a way, thinking of dissolving them, I think it's knowing them, understanding them, and then working on, in a way, de-intensifying them, in a way, de them. Then there is a third one which is dharma gates are limitless, I vow to learn them all. And personally I would say that this one, most school of Buddhism, they actually don't do. Because basically it says dharma gates are limitless, I vow to learn them all. But generally whatever school, whatever tradition in Buddhism you enter, they generally will tell you this is the only way. This is what you have to do, this is the best way, everything else, not very good. So actually generally you encourage to just learn a few Dharma gates. And I think because in a way what happens is that in a way somebody does something, some practice, and I think that's the way that's been going on in the tradition, you do something, it's good for you. So because you think it's good for you, it's a right thing to do. Then because it's a right thing to do, it very easily becomes the only thing to do and easily everybody must do this. So in a way I think this uh, vow really makes us question, in a way I would say dogmatism, to really think we know what is the best. I think we can know what is the best for us, but I don't think we can know what is the best for everyone. Because I know in my experience, you know, when I was in Korea, they did not think much of Japanese Zen. In Japan, they thought Korean Zen was terrible. And the reason for that was because they sat in meditation on a warm floor. How could anybody awaken on a warm floor? I ask you. you know? Then you have the Korean. They did not think much of the Tibetan, you know, the Tibetan, you know, you know all these mantras and magic and mystery. No, 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 no. They did not think much of that. But then we went. This was one of my best moments. Uh, we were in Tibet in 1985, and we just stopped being uh, monks and nuns, and uh, so the we were in uh, La and we went to eat, some of the very little to eat, but there was some uh, kind of uh, noodles and a few pieces of vegetables. And then noticed we looked a little Buddhist. We kind of had some kind of aura of mm-hmm. Buddhism. And so they said, oh, are you Buddhist? And said, so, yeah, 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 we're Buddhist. And they say, but you know, where did you learn it? And so we said, you know, oh, Zen, you know, like Chinese Buddhism. And then they say, Chinese Buddhism, we vanquished it. (laughs) And I thought, I turned to Stephen, they vanquished it. And I look at them and they say, yeah, yeah, you know, in the Samia debate. So I turned to Stephen, Samia debate. And Stephen said, oh, yes, you know, in the 12th century, yeah. But the way he said it was like yesterday. You know, it happened yesterday. And so it was, you know, quite an interesting moment, you know. Because it's a debate between a Tibetan and a Chinese. And, of course, the Tibetan wins. And, of course, in the Chinese scripture, they say he wins, but whatever. So in a way, to see that in a way we presented with practices, and these practices have a cultural context, have an experiential context. And I think sometimes it's important to see what is it that is really from the culture, the Korean culture, the Japanese culture, and what is it really the practice that is in a way a true Dharma gate for ourselves. Because I can still remember to this day when I was in Korea, I had to always wear socks. A good Buddhist, a good meditator, always wore socks, even in the summer even if it was 45 degree. Okay, I go to Japan in November, rather cold, and there I must not wear socks. Because if I wear socks, I really can't enlighten. You know, you have to have bare foot. You know, true awakening requires bare foot. Then I go to Taiwan, and then I see sometimes they have socks, and sometimes they don't. And I think maybe they've reached the truth of socklessness. <laughs> <laughs> and so I go to the meditation hall at one point without socks. And then at, when I come out, somebody's waiting for me. This was terrible. So insulting. So disappointing. No socks. But I said, come on, sometimes you don't have them. But only after four o'clock in the afternoon, after the <laughs> <laughs> That's all. <laughs> but in a way to be careful you know that often we do this we kind of we think this is so important but i think what is really important is in a way the compassion the wisdom not so much the cultural kind of phenomenon and also to see that all these practices that we find now all these dharma gates are geographically and historically contingent this i think is very important but at the same time also not to be caught in this. Because I remember we were in Korea and a book came out about koans. You know, that actually some of the koans were not true stories. So, you know, we all rushed to Master Kuzan and uh, because koans are very important in them. And we said, Master, Master, you see in this book, they say that you know, the, the koans are not historically true. And he looked at us and said, so what? <laughs> they still works. And so in a way, of course we can have that historical perspective and at the same time we have to see what is it that works? What is it that inspires us? I think this is also another thing that we have to look because we can, I know Stephen has a certain idea that inspires him obviously, <laughs> but it's not necessarily what's going to inspire you. I think this is very important. And I think that's what Master Kuzan was saying. Okay, the Quran might not have happened, but as stories, they still were. They still point something out that you can relate to, even so many centuries later. So in a way, to see that the Buddha developed many different practices, then from that, many different people, in a way, developed even more creatively, And now we found them. But at the same time, we cannot learn them all. In a way, we can explore, we can try, we can deepen, but we can only do a few at a time, or one at a time. So in a way, to see, as I said before, that we can be grounded in one thing, but also explore other things, to kind of, in a way, again, take care of this multidimensionality. And also to be careful is not only... Buddhist Dharma gates I think it's nice it did not say all Buddhist gates but Dharma gates and actually we can find the Dharma in many different ways personally at the moment I'm reading a lot about cognitive therapy because I think in a way a lot of what the Buddha was teaching is very similar and I'm very interested in reading books about it it gives me lots of idea and so in a way we have to be careful not to limit ourselves to Buddhism. I think we can find the Dharma, Dharma gates in many different ways. And also to see what is it that makes us grow, what is it that makes us reflect, what is it that helps us to be stable, to be open, to be more creative. I remember for myself, I was a nun for 10 years and I had nothing to do with children for 10 years. And I was a nun from 22 to 32. And then I came back to the the West and lived in England, near here, and there was all these little beings, and I had no idea what to do with them. You know, I would see them, and I was not sure. You know, it was kind of like I was encountering a different species, kind of, you know, and I felt quite separate. And I thought, but that's in a way, not a good way to be. You can't relate to them. So then I went on to a um, preschool learning course for six months. And it was the best thing I ever did. You know, to learn about how to be with children and some of the psychology and, you know, doing little painting and little cutouts, I mean, all kind of, you know, and going to the kindergarten and things like this. And now I have a great time with children. And kind of recently I got this Great! It was great uh, kind of praise. Friends came with children. And, you know, straight away I did things with them. I always have games for them and various things. And then the children asked their parents, but is she a teacher? Is she a kindergarten <laughs> teacher? <laughs> <laughs> so obviously the training had some impact. So anyway, to see, there are many different ways to develop ourselves, many different dharma gates. So in a way, to see our journey, as a journey of discovery. And then the last one, the Buddha's way is unsurpassable. I vow to attain it. This doesn't mean that the Buddha's way is the highest or the only way, but that it is valuable for us, that it is very rich for us. And also that vow, I think, is saying, I can do this. I can walk upon this path. I can progress upon this path. It is not, unattainable. So I think it's very important to see that, that in a way we, what we do in the practice, also cultivating ethic, cultivating wisdom, that in a way this make us grow so that we can help ourselves, we can all also help others. And sometimes we don't have to do anything. We just have to be, to be those qualities that we develop in the practice. And I remember I used to visit a, a friend at Trouble, So I, used, I, I said, can I help you? And she said, can you visit my mother, who is in a nursing home and quite unhappy there? And so every week I went to see this old lady. And later on, uh, the daughter told me that one of the things she liked the most about my visit is that I was so calm. I could just be so still with her, because she, 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 she was a Quaker, the mother, and all around her, it was very busy, lots of activity, lots of, she felt like kind of a little tense from all this kind of demand, even in this old people's home. And so when I, we spent an hour once a week, she just liked being with somebody who could be calm. And sometimes we had this moment of just being in silence together. And she really benefited from that. So we need to see that we might have already developed more than we think we have. I think we have to be careful, again, of that tendency to belittle what we have achieved, what we understand, what we have realized. And in a way, to to maybe, when we leave this retreat tomorrow, to remember this nun I met in Korea. And I asked her, what is your practice? And she told me, Our practice was to be a Buddha. So every morning she did a little meditation and then her intention was to manifest the wisdom and the compassion of the Buddha in the day. And then at the end of the day, she would review the day, think, how Buddha-like was I? How sentient being like was I? And then the next day, again trying to be a Buddha. And maybe each of us, can we be Buddha for ourselves? Can we be Buddhas for others? And so in a way to see these vows as power of intention, in a way giving ourselves a direction, but also power of recognition that yes, I can do this, and also power of meaning, that actually these vows are the value, the ground upon which our life can be lived and cultivated. So that's what I wanted to say today. And just, I had a a note, a question about practice, in terms of, you know, if someone really wants to practice, um, the question basically was saying, you know, should I go to a monastery, should I go on a long retreat or should I, you know, stay in daily life? You know, how do I make this kind of decision of how to continue in the practice? And often people ask me that, you know, how do I decide either to do a long retreat or how do I decide to become a monk or to become a nun? And my answer is, if it is the only thing you want to do at that moment, and if in a way there are no obstacle to you doing it. I remember when I became a nun, I had no partner, no children, I was not doing any training, I had really nothing that stopped me from doing that. And I thought, then why not do this? This, you know, I can do this now. I have the time and this is really something I want to try. I want to do myself. So to me, this would be the first thing, that you really want to do it. If you have any doubt, then I would say don't do it. Because actually, going on retreat is easier. To want to go on retreat, this is relatively easy. Then the only thing you have to find is first if you can do it in terms of time or responsibility, and if you have the money to do it, of course. Or if you can find a place where you don't need money, that's also is possible. I mean, I had a friend, she found a very cheap place to do this kind of like uh, uh, hermitage retreat. And she even brought seeds and planted seeds so she did not have to spend too much money on food. I thought that was really kind of, you know, do-I-why kind of retreat. Very, very, you know, so in a way we can find that. But I think if one... Think, consider becoming a monk and a nun. I think you have to be very careful because becoming a monk and a nun is not just about practice. Becoming a monk and a nun is entering a culture, is entering a setup, entering community life. And I would say one of the greatest training aspects of uh, being a monk and a nun is community life, is being in a different culture more than practice actually. Because you cannot be self-centered when you are a monk and a nun. And that's why once the kind of the honeymoon period pass, it is not easy to be a monk and a nun. Because you live with all these people and although they are shaved head and wear a certain robe, they're not different from human beings. They have the same greed, hatred and delusion. And so in a way you find yourself in the same place, but of course with different people, with a very definite environment, which of course if you have enough intention you can go beyond this greed, hatred, and delusion. And I would say my time in Korea was one of the best time of my life, an invaluable training. But I think one has to see it is again multidimensional. It is not just an abstract idea. So, and also I think we can develop our practice in daily life. I really believe this. Like my friend Grant, the one who, who raised all this money, that fellow is amazing. He's, I mean, he's in this huge company. You know I mean? It's kind of you go there and they, all these people are in front of this weird screen with all the indexes of the markets. I mean, it's kind of... You know, very, I mean, he's a big company, very wealthy person. But, you know, uh, at least one month a year, he goes on retreat. And that's what he does, that's what he wants to do in his life. And some of the other time, you know, he does other things for charitable, uh, for charity, and things like that. But also, we can actually do it in an ordinary life. I mean, I have a friend nowadays, you know because of the situation with her mother and her brother who are both uh, disabled, she actually can't come to day long, even day long meditation or to group meditation because she had to take care of them every weekend. But these, you know, we write to each other, but these become a practice. And she actually has learned a lot through actually dedicating herself to her mother and her brother with amazing compassion. And I think she actually might be developing more than someone who might go on a very long retreat. So to see that actually we can practice in so many different ways. Each of us, we have to find this in our life, in our own way. Are there any questions? Yeah.
1: Um, You've taught us four or five different practices and, and there are a few others that we haven't tried like meditation on death and things like that. Now, assuming most of us have a daily practice and we meditate daily, how would how you suggest that we combine them say if like, three, three of them really work for us? Should we do them sequentially or?
0: I would just actually say keep to one. Keep to one you feel quite comfortable. If you're more comfortable with the breath, just do the breath most of the time and then bring the other tool of awareness in your daily life. That's the way I would suggest it. But again, to see, you see, to see, to find, sometimes people might find the breath and the question good, or some people might find loving kindness good, you see, this I think you have to, I would not say you need to do many of them.
1: you mean in in your daily life, you
0: mean? Listening in your daily life, Being aware of the body as you work. You see, meditation is not just on the cushion. For it to really become meditation in daily life, it is bringing the awareness to, in a way, everything we do. So I feel that it's good to just keep, you know, keep one, what works breath or sound or sensation or whatever it is, but that the Meditation helps you to be calm, but also to inquire. And then in the day, to try to use the other method. Because you see, you can't watch the breath all the time in the in the day, for example. You can't do loving kindness all the time. It's not very practical, <laughs> you know. So there are some, uh, like I would say, if you do something, uh, more mechanical, in a way, more body-oriented. If you do gardening, then you can be very aware of your body. If if you are a therapist, then what I think you're working on is listening. Listening in a different way. If uh, you work at a computer like myself, then I think it's very important to be aware of the body and also aware of your thought. You know, to kind of, can I not go ahead of myself? Can I not be distracted, but really present here? So, to me, that's why I presented all the tools of awareness for you to find one which was a good one for you, and also to see that also this other one you can do more as a kind of a daily practice. Okay, then maybe I'll just say, you know, uh, I it was... I was
1: just to follow up on what you said earlier about, like, about practicing in daily life, it seems to me that um, the key, <coughs> and maybe a difference between being on a retreat or being in a more um, kind of ordered situation like a monastery and being in daily life, is, is support and reminders and encouragement to keep going. And that if you're on your own <coughs> in your daily life, you might watching TV and that becomes more part of your life than meditation. And I can see that Sangha groups can be a big part of that. But I, I also wondered, I suppose, about more personal support, really, or you know, ways in which you can ask questions or encourage each other to keep going. You know, in a culture, as Stephen said, which is, is not encouraging meditation.
0: Well, you see, sometimes you have groups, like um, uh, you have, uh, like in America, I'm aware of one group and they would, you know, they were meeting once a week and every week they would have a theme. And and so, and then kind of they would have a theme they would work on, uh, compassion or, I mean, you know, sometimes it was, you know, just being aware of sound or whatever it was. And then, you know, they would, re- a week later, they would all kind of tell each other how it was you know, to work with that particular subject. I think this is one way. If, again, if one doesn't have a sangha around, again, once we had this uh, group over two years where uh, a group of people would come together and practice. But what was interesting in terms of what you say is that we would give it, again, give them subject to look at in their life. And then actually some of them would email each other about it, because you see, sometimes you can be physically close to each other, see each other once a week, and then you can work on these things, or also by email. And nowadays, I mean, nowadays, you have kind of so many blo- Buddhist blogs. I discovered Buddhist blogs. And you actually, I mean, you know, there is the good, the bad, and the ugly, there, I must say. Uh, but some of them are really, you see, people who try really in their daily life. And that also can inspire you. So I think, yes, I would agree. You know, to look at what is it that helps me? Is it contact with other? Is it email contact? Is it listening to tape? Is it reading to books? Is it, I think, you know, everybody's situation is a little different. And so one has to kind of see. I mean, of course, I mean, myself and Stephen, although we are the only Buddhist uh, in a kind of a, maybe 30-kilometer a vicinity, I mean, at least there is a the two of us, and also our work, so it's easier for us. So that's what I think people have to see. Uh, how can I help myself? Uh, and so everybody there, have, I think, has to find different ways, which can be more communal, which can be more, one has to kind of find creative way by oneself. Also, looking on the internet, what, you know, what some people are up to. I think can also make you see oh yes I could do this too I think that's nowadays that's kind of one uh, uh, thing which can be useful yes I just a question about your tapes is there like a the copyright on them um, what are we allowed and not allowed to do if we buy your tapes oh you can do anything you want <laughs> I mean yeah
1: it, we can copy them and we can um, play them in
0: of course, of course. Yeah, no, no, there is a... Yeah, no, no, nothing. Nothing. Yeah, you can do... I mean, what, there is a nice uh, group which is called Insight in uh, California. And what is amazing, Gil, down who is a teacher, now they have this huge kind of, you know, very good recording equipment. So whoever talks there, whenever he give a talk, he goes onto the website. And then it's free. Anybody can, I think, access the website... If you want to have all the new talk, maybe you have to pay something, that I'm not sure. So that people like in Hungary, people in Poland, they all kind of say how much they like those talks. And actually the talk go all over the world. So yeah, there is no copyright. Okay, just a brief, I mean brief, because we had um, a few questions about that. This was about the silence, you know. And the thing about the silence But sometimes, some people really love the silence because especially if they have a very busy life with lots of noise and lots of talking, then they come here and they think, great, they love the silence at Gaia House. Then there are other people who come, especially if they've never been in silence, and they find it very threatening. It's true, I mean, some people, they they think everybody is cold-hearted you know, you know, they don't look and they don't smile. I mean, though this one, you know, you can get much worse retreat than that, you know, where nobody <laughs> looks at you, you know. This one is a little kind of easier. And, uh, but I think what is important to see is that it's just for seven days. And to me, that's the way I see the silence. I know it is not easy for everybody. For example, when you eat in silence, this is so weird, isn't it? You know, you're eating, and you, everybody, and you try not to look at the other person. I mean, I, I agree; it's kind of weird to eat in silence. But at the same time, I think, although it is sometimes difficult, it is a very good exercise because I think it's so important that we can assert ourselves through ourselves, that we don't need for somebody else. To assert our own being, to me, this is one of the important thing about the silence. And of course, um, sometimes people would like to share more together. And why they would not? Mo- normally, on some retreat, there is more kind of group uh, meeting and discussion. And on this one, there was not because you know there is a talk, then there is another talk, then there is a discussion. and We could not fit it in, but. Next year, we're not going to do a study retreat. Just it's going to be a plain uh, mindfulness and questioning retreat. And then there should be groups. And then, you know, Stephen will take care of the groups, and then it's only about 8 to 10 people, and then people can more, share more things. But I know sometimes people would, would want to have more kind of group sharing, but if you have a group sharing without the teacher there, then actually it is not necessarily going to work we have had bad experience previously and that's why we don't do them anymore. To just say to eight people, okay, go together and speak together and sometimes it is not helpful. So again, within any schedule you have to fit several things and so that's why it was like that this time. But of course, if you have difficulty with the silence and you really find it problematic, I would say, don't come on retreat like this. I think then it's better to go on retreat with Tignatan or retreat with the FWBO, where there is more communication. And I think it's very important for each person to know, what is it I need now? Do I need to work more on communication? Or do I need to work more on, in a way, working with myself in a supportive environment? And one is not better than the other, it's just, it feeds different need at different time. So, that's what I wanted to say. So-
1: Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.